in the hobby. It's not easy being a fan of ripping packs or repacks. We hype ourselves up thinking that we could pull, I don't know, Hall of Famer. But with zero transparency on available cards and hit rates, it's all just a shot in the dark. Until now, introducing Slab Packs from ArenaClub.com. The only repack that provides real value, a complete view of all possible cards, and clear hit rates for each one. Now when I buy slab packs on Arena Club, it finally feels like I know what I'm getting. There is nothing more fun than opening an Arena Club slab pack. I mean, it is so much better than any mystery pack that I've ever purchased because there is a focus on transparency. There is a display of available cards. There are hit rates you can get. When you're graded, you're given a rationale. It is the marketplace for card collecting, buying, trading, selling, and displaying. Arena Club Slab Packs are revolutionizing the repack game with transparency. After your pulls are revealed, they'll immediately be placed in your vault for safekeeping or trading and selling. You can have them officially graded by Arena Club. The Arena Club grading process is accurate, fast, and transparent, with a full grade rationale provided and explanation of how your card was scored. Whether you're buying, selling, trading, or displaying, Arena Club is the card collecting platform you have to check out. Right now, you can get 10% off your first purchase by going to arenaclub.com slash badmoney. Wow, that's a crazy offer. 10% off a $400 slab pack, that's $40 right there. Anyways, that's arenaclub.com slash badmoney for 10% off your first purchase. I love to track progress. As you guys know from listening to this show, I'm constantly tracking my progress. What have we done so far in 2024? And spring is in full bloom. Are your finances blooming too? With the Chime Secured Credit Builder Visa Credit Card, it's easy to start building credit with everyday purchases and regular on-time payments with no annual fees or interest. And if your credit scores grow, so could your opportunities for lower rates on loans like for a car or a home. You can use it everywhere Visa credit cards are accepted. That's right, you can build your credit using your own money. Get paid up to two days early with direct deposit. With a qualifying direct deposit, you can get access to your money sooner. Fee-free overdraft with SpotMe. Overdraft up to $200 without fees with SpotMe when you set up a qualified direct deposit. Just set up a qualifying direct deposit, sign up for SpotMe, and Chime will spot you up to your limit when you make a credit card purchase or cash withdrawal that exceeds your balance. Access 60,000 plus fee-free ATMs. That's more than the top three national banks combined. Easily find one near you with the Chime app. Send and receive money. Use Chime to pay anyone, Chime members or not, and cash out your money fee-free. With Chime's secure credit card, you can start improving your credit scores right away. Get started at Chime.com slash bad money. That's Chime.com slash bad money. Chime. Feels like progress. The Chime Credit Builder Visa Credit Card is issued by the Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. members FDIC. Spot me eligibility requirements and overdraft limits apply. Out-of-network ATM withdrawal and OTC advance fees may apply. Terms and conditions apply. Go to Chime.com slash disclosures for details. You got problems that you ought to be concerned with. Hoorah! You don't know how you're supposed to earn it or what to do with it or how to keep it. You're a freak with a dark, shameful secret. But you're not the only one. Get your hidden financial fears with a blast of sun. Now your healing has begun. It's Bad With Money with Gabby. Done. Hello and welcome to Bad With Money. I'm your host, Gabby Dunn, and this is a show about finances and feelings where we don't talk down to you. We are on season nine of this show, season nine. 
It started in 2016. And anyone who's been listening for even a short amount of time would probably say that this show strives, at its best moments, to be inclusive in both its guest list and in the topics that we cover. There's an unofficial policy of not booking straight cis white men if we don't absolutely have to. I've always believed if you can find one of those to talk about a topic, you can probably find one or two marginalized people to speak on that very same topic. This episode of Bad With Money is all about inclusion, equality, and equity. What does it mean to make truly inclusive work? One of this week's guests gives quite a succinct answer. Listening. By just listening. As a constant consumer of money media, I can say with conviction that not a whole lot of listening happens there. Think of Mad Money's Jim Cramer screaming on CNBC about which stocks to pick, or Dave Ramsey screaming at callers for being stupid, including one call-in show on January 4th, 2021, where he and the caller misgender the caller's partner for like a solid seven minutes, and another April 27th, 2021 call from a quote-unquote depressed millionaire who wants to cut her socialist children out of her will, and Dave Ramsey tells her that socialists are not people of character. Yeah, I had not watched that much Dave Ramsey prior to writing about inclusion and equality for this show, and hoo boy! Even former Bad With Money guest and sometimes okay person slash lesbian chaos demon Susie Orman raises her voice and tells people that they are dumb, that they are super dumb. Money media is not inclusive on the largest scale, and I'm talking about mainstream TV or podcasts, but individually... And for up-and-coming financial advisors and creators, the gaps are being filled in. I see more and more websites, Instagram accounts, books, newsletters, all independent, largely, being created by marginalized people. I've also seen a notable increase in, in particular, Black women personal finance activists and influencers on Instagram, one of whom we're going to talk to today. I've also been told Facebook has become a hotspot for money groups for specific types of people historically left out of the money conversation. Bad With Money does have a Facebook page, but I remain largely scared of Facebook. So that's the democracy of the internet, baby. And with that democratization comes more and more ability to unite and ask for more. This week on the show, we have Design Sponge founder Grace Bonney on to talk about her process toward creating better inclusion in her work and the new, more equitable residuals method for the women she interviewed in her upcoming book. We get into the nitty gritty of paying to keep a website up and running, making sure her employees were getting compensated fairly, and the idea of paying marginalized interviewees for their voices. That's right, she's giving residuals from her book to the interviewees. It's super fascinating and not something that I had heard about before. Then... I have a delightful and very direct conversation with the broke black girl founder, Daisha Kennedy, a financial activist with an inspiring and validating Instagram presence who explains why her work centers black women and shares her experiences looking for useful resources as a teen mom who wasn't even old enough to have a job. The point of these interviews is to highlight some new ways people with power can better share the proceeds from their collaborative works and to hear from a very important rare voice in the financial media world. So first, Grace Bonney. My name's Grace Bonney, and a couple years ago, I closed a website called Design Sponge that I ran for about 15 years, but I am now in graduate school to become a therapist, and I'm here to talk about a book I wrote called Collective Wisdom. 
Yes. So before we get into that, what was Design Sponge about, which I know is a hard question, and then like how did inclusion come about in the work that you were doing there? So Design Sponge was a daily blog kind of about the creative community, and it started out primarily as interior designers and product designers and then grew to be anyone who made anything that I found vaguely interesting. And I would say about 10 years into it, I just got kind of called in by a lot of people who I really admired to just say like, yeah, we noticed you talking about equity and not taking any responsibility for what part you play in that issue. And I remember several conversations really clearly that I really appreciate. And kind of on a dime, we turned and just changed the way the website was functioning because it was a really small team. And that became a huge focus. And then there were all these layers of like, okay, it's not just representation. It's who's on the team, who's paid, who has positions of power. So yeah, it was a kind of a process, I would say the last five years of the site that equity became like a big conversation point for us. That's so interesting. What was the call in? And like, I always like when people gently are like, I love this thing. Here's my thoughts. Yeah, I think, you know, you can't like run a blog for the first 10 years of like internet era and not get a really thick skin mm-hmm. for feedback. And so a good friend of mine just kind of sat me down and was like, hey, I noticed you doing a lot of podcast episodes on the lack of sort of diversity in the design community, but I'm curious why you're not including yourself in that discussion beyond just pointing it out. Like, do you not see that you have a part in that? And I truly did not. And she sat me down and was like, mm. you know, are you setting up Google alerts for information about designers of color? Like, are you talking about disability? Are you talking about queerness? And all of these things that I just didn't think to like specifically sit down and focus on. And then I realized unless I did that, nothing was going to change. So I heard that in a couple different ways. And over like a two-month period, everything kind of like solidified Yeah, I mean, we do that with this show where, like, I don't interview cis straight white men usually, other than the one time that we did want to talk about the penny. The episode literally became, why are only white men obsessed with the penny? Because I could not find anyone else to talk about it. Anyway, so can you talk a little bit about the decision to close Design Sponge? Because I feel like it was like this great, honest look at at running a business. Thanks. It was many years in the making, but I think... The biggest aha moment for me was when uh, Tavi Gevinson closed Rookie and I read the letter that she wrote, which it kind of said everything that had been kind of rattling around in my mind for years and said it far more beautifully than I could have said it. And the only thing that stood out to me was just how abrupt the closing felt. And I just felt devastated that like as of that moment, it was gone. And I took from that that I would like to announce that we were closing before we actually did. So I announced it in January and we closed in August on our 15th birthday. And it got to be like a fun homecoming year of like revisiting old posts and people we had written about, you know, like a decade earlier. And it was a really bittersweet time. But by the time we really closed, it felt like it was done and it was time. So I'm really grateful for Taffy for writing that <laughs> that post because it was it was an honest look at how incredibly challenging it is to financially make a non-fully sponsored blog work these days. I was going to ask what what part did ad revenue play in that? Oh, everything. I mean, that was, you know, our primary source of income was was ad revenue, which I knew from day 1 like I, I used to work for magazines and I knew it's not a model that works and We did all sorts of side projects, but the end result was that brands or partners or even outlets just wanted more and more work for less and less money. And at a certain point, 
you know, I paid people as much as I could humanly afford to pay them. And I very frequently just didn't pay myself. And at a certain point, I was like, I can't ask people to do twice the amount of work for half the amount of money. And I would rather just support them in finding other work. And so that's kind of where I settled. And it was, it wasn't an easy choice, but it was one that I just, I sleep much better at night having made the decision that I did. So for your new book, you did this thing that kind of blew my mind, which is compensating the women in the book. Can you explain the book? And then can you explain like the model that you did there? Yeah. So almost all, I've written a few books and most of my books focus on trying to offer up a really wide range of stories about women and their experiences. And this particular book focused on women over 50 and also women that are part of meaningful intergenerational connections, because that's a big part of my life. But I had written a book like this before focused on creative entrepreneurs. And I think there were 100 women in that book. And the publishing structure is set up so that no one ever questions the fact that the author makes all the money. Mm -hmm. And I never make any money on the front end of my projects because they cost so much to produce that I've always kind of waited, you know, year, year or two later, maybe you make money if the book does well. And I just never questioned that. And I spent all the money on production. And going into this project, I had the feedback of four years passing between my last book and this one, where people said like, hey, you are this white person making all of this money off of the stories of primarily women of color. This isn't right. You need to think about you know, how you did this, what could be done differently. And I brought it up with my publisher to talk about like revenue sharing models. And they were like, this isn't something people do. Like, why wouldn't you pay yourself? Mm -hmm. So with this project, I really wanted to think about what's a model that might work that could be replicated, especially for people in creative communities that do a lot of these kind of group focused books. So I looked at like, how do I produce this book that leaves money in the front from the advance? And then what would it look like going forward? So I decided to divide up the entire advance after the cost of the book. So that's already been distributed to all the women who did the book. And then going forward, 50% of the book's profits in perpetuity will go to all of the women. And that might be like a $25 check yeah. every year. I have no idea. But I feel like it it's important that we start like thinking about equity in the structure of these books or any group project, really. And and it's always just an assumption that like, of course, you want to be included in this project where the people who write the books make all of the money. And I don't blame the, those people necessarily, but I think there's not a lot of questioning of those financial structures of like, why should only one person financially benefit from what is very much a community project? So I'm sure I'll find a million things that I did wrong with this structure. But I think my goal is always to try to do just like a little mm -hmm. bit better each time and, and learn from a mistake. So so far, it feels good. Like this past week, I wrote out 113 checks and mailed them. So that that felt really nice. I wonder if you did this revenue share and then other people in the industry were like, damn it, Grace, now the rest <laughs> of us have to do this. Like, you know, I hope somebody feels that way, but in a less obligatory sense. But I don't know. I've, I've had a lot of people reach out to me. And when I started changing the pay structures when I ran Design Sponge towards the last five years as well, I had people saying, like, why are you doing this? Because none of us can afford that. And so now someone's going to come to me and say, I wrote a city guide for your website. I want to be paid for that, too. And I was like, mm -hmm. we should all be paying people. This this should not be a question. But editorial has never been set up to, you know, support the people fully who are creating the actual content. To this day, it's still not. So I think small moves are a good way to get started, although eventually I think, you know, a full 
reversal of the system would be great. It would be interesting, especially for people who cover particularly marginalized groups. It would be super interesting if they had to compensate those people in some way. And I don't think it would... I don't think it would, in this journalistic sense, like taint anything. I think that's some sort of maybe weird old school look at that, you know? Yeah. I think it's important that we look at like who sets the ethical guidelines for these things and what do they have to benefit? And I like, I'm dealing with this in grad school right now for therapy where it's like where I've been taking all these ethics class and all these rules that are just like still really rooted in like whiteness and patriarchy. And I'm like, who wrote the rules? Like, shouldn't we be like dismantling some of these and figuring out if there's a better way to build them? I don't know. I I just think those questions need to happen and they need to happen like really quickly. I I think formal journalism, like slightly different. I don't, I do not consider myself a journalist at all. But I think when it comes to books, like people who look like me make a lot of money on books that include a lot of different voices and we get a lot of credit for that. I don't think that's entirely fair. And some of it you can't control, but some of it you can. So I hope more people consider doing that. Going back to the revenue split and everything, what was the advance for that book and what did it end up shaking out to, all the 130 checks that you sent? So every person got paid $375, which was like sent to 113 people. Not a ton of money, but it's not nothing. Mm-hmm. The whole advance was 225 which sounds like a lot of money. But once you set up travel to visit that many people, it adds up really mm-hmm. quickly. So I think we had like $43,000 left or something. And so I divided that up among 113 people. And that was that. It was kind of simple. And so... If the book is profitable, I will repeat that process once a year. You'll get two royalty checks a year usually, but I find like writing a check for like $7 is probably not worth it. So I try to combine it at the end of the year. So so we'll see. I'm, I'm hopeful if the book does well that I'll be able to send people enough money to like go have a nice dinner or something, you know, once a year, just as a reminder of like, thanks, like this was a group effort and here's a small something to appreciate that. It's truly wild. Like I had Roxanne Gay on season one. So, you know, 2016. Hmm. But my advance for my book was like 50K because I was like a YouTuber at mm-hmm. the time. And then Roxanne said that for um, Bad Feminist, which is like an iconic tome, she got like 15K or something as an advance for that. And like no one cares about my YouTuber novel. Like, are you kidding me? But it was it's clear racism, it's clear like influencer bias. So uh, that doesn't change unless people like us say that or say what we made. You know who hates that? Agents and managers. They don't like it. Oh, they hate it. I mean, well, my last book did quite well, and so I think that's why I got paid more for this book. But my first book I got paid 50 as well. That was my first advance was $50,000 and I went probably $30,000 into my own pocket to finish that book, not knowing that producing an interiors book is like physically impossible with $50,000. You just cannot pay photographers enough to like go to 75 different houses. Like that just won't work. And so I learned that. And for the second book, I still didn't make any money off the first of it. But you know, it's, it's important to talk about those things. And I now have like a full Google slideshow document that I share with anybody in my community who's interested in figuring out what it's like to produce a book of the type that I produce. That's like a group effort. And I share my Excel sheets and my budget documents and who I paid, how I paid them, what systems I used. Publishers like to throw out a number that they think 
new authors will be very mm-hmm. wowed by, not realizing that's a fraction of the money they will need to do anything. Mm-hmm. So I hope that we can continue to piss off publishers and agents <laughs> because it's super important. I've said this a few times, but like, you know, you get an advance, but you don't realize how little places care. For all of my books, I hired sensitivity readers out of my own pocket. I hired transcription people, like friends of mine to do transcripts. To write the book, I had to have people on payroll. And I assumed the publisher will do this. So I was like, hey, and again, this was like 2016 or something, but I was like, is it possible to get sensitivity readers for X, Y, and Z? And they were like, if you want to. Oh, yeah. I mean, I find even now that publishers are outsourcing publicity entirely to authors to just say like, oh, you have Instagram. And they know damn well that's not working. That's that's just really not working for most people. And, you know, I think it's publishers are trying to figure it out just as much as authors are. And I think some are doing that with equity in mind and, and some are not. And I think usually they get caught. I think it's the authors who work with those brands' job to also hold them accountable and to speak up and to not do projects with them if they're not treating people fairly. So, you know, I appreciate that the media is at least starting to pay attention to those numbers because the numbers are important. In the book, how did these women define success? Hmm. Really differently. You know, I think it varied a lot from community to community. I think women who were over 80 in this book Success was being able to find some sense of freedom after a husband had died, mm-hmm. <laughs> after children were out of the house. Like, I can't tell you how many women said if I could go back and change one thing, it would be not to get married and really enjoyed finding creative freedom, personal freedom, financial freedom, like the older that they got. I don't think they saw that as success. I found a lot of women actually bristled at the word success or the word like empowerment or power. They were like, oh, no, 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 I I don't like those words. So I would try to like talk around those issues. But that was a really interesting generational divide was like, I feel really comfortable talking about success and like all the different ways that can look for people. But I think at a certain age, that was kind of associated with a, a power structure that was inherently not interesting to older women who were like, yeah, I'm not I'm not interested in like having control over people. I just want to like do the things I want to do and be left alone. So I think success, the definition felt smaller, but in a way I really, really loved. The other book that you did was called In the Company of Women, which maybe is more directly related to this show because it was about women entrepreneurs. I think, I, I mean, because of my own bias, like a lot of that book skewed towards people who were my own, in my own age bracket at the time, people in their 30s and 40s. And so I think they were still like really hyper-focused on career and everything was about achieving those levels of success. And, you know, that's different for everybody. But I think when you start talking to people who've been alive for 70 to 100 years, like those identifying factors related to job just very much seem to fade away of like, that's not a huge part of who they are. And so their successes tended to be tied to relationships or parenting, whether that's parenting children or being a mentor to like other people. And I became more relational. And that was a a difference that I, I really enjoyed about the new book. But there is something exciting about like all of those younger women in that book who just were like really embracing that they could be in charge of their own financial life and not have to rely on somebody, especially not a man for that. So that was really fun to like dive into for people who I think had never been encouraged to talk about money really openly. In terms of the first book, is there anything that you'd change about the people in the book, either like the demographics or or what you asked them now that time has passed? 
Oh, yeah. I was a completely clueless person writing that book. I just didn't pay enough people. So I would definitely change that. Everything about the people who were included would look different. I didn't think about disability at all. Every home is like a non-accessible home. So yeah, I would do everything completely differently. But that book is very much a capsule of who I was in 2007, I guess, when I wrote that. So every book has kind of been a capsule of like what I've learned up until that point. And then I get lots of very enthusiastic feedback and then try to incorporate that into whatever I get to do next. How did that change for the current book? I think the pay structure was the biggest part of it. I think I had learned a lot about equity in terms of representation. And when it came to like, how do I financially share that that was the best way I could do that. In addition to, for some of the women in the book, I very much realized that I should not be the person asking Mm. those questions. And that wasn't something that the publisher was super jazzed about. They were like, no, 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 like your name should be central to this. And I was like, I will edit this book, but I don't think I should be the person asking the questions to everybody. So I hired a lot of people from within those women's communities, whether that's indigenous women or trans women, women from like the disabled activist community, just to kind of have some commonality there. And I'm glad I did that. And again, those were people that were hired and paid for everything. So I think everything came down to like, how do I financially compensate people? And how do I ensure that that stories are not being pushed through my lens? So I think now I try to just get out of the way as much as I can. How do you maintain like making the advice in these books or whatever applicable to people who are like on the come up or like are, you know, in the beginning, bottom? Collective Wisdom, this new book, is way more personal. I realized really quickly within the company of women that framing, especially financial and business advice as advice, is a problem on its own. And I probably should not have done that. And it's tough when you work with a publisher. Like, they want keywords in titles and subtitles. And, Mm -hmm. like, taking the word advice out of this was never going to happen. That was a fight I would not win. But I think what I try to do is present these as, like, many, many options that exist. And I pay attention very closely to the diversity of stories told because I think that in the company of women, it would have been really easy to just choose a ton of people whose families like financed their businesses. And I included a few of those because that's a reality and I don't want to shame somebody for that, but I want to be really honest about that. And so that's why I pushed for financial transparency. I just think transparency over advice is the best thing you can do. Like I'm thinking of there's a great podcast called Maintenance Phase um, that Aubrey Gordon hosts, and she did a whole episode on uh, the girl just wash your face, whatever that, Rachel something, anyway, an episode on the girl just wash her face books. And they said, like, you know, on the surface, there's nothing wrong with the book she wrote. But when you phrase your own individual experience, which is deeply rooted in privilege as advice that everyone can follow, that's where it becomes problematic. So I think... I'm always really fighting with the word advice in my work because I do love service journalism and I do love providing information that could be helpful. But I think unless you're providing a really wide range of options, the story tends to be like narrowed down into this like work, 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 hustle culture, and then everything takes off. But that doesn't take into account all of the intersectional identity factors that make life infinitely harder. It doesn't take into effect chronic illness or disability or supporting family members or immigration issues, like any of the stuff that affect Mm -hmm. finance. And so I think it's just useless if you don't talk about all those other things at the same time. 
it all becomes about marketing at some point. And I, I understand that that marketing is connected to sales and sales are connected to stories being shared with people. And I, I understand that. But I also think sometimes just the content suffers so much when we're not honest. And like, I think those stories are so important. And it bums me out when marketing gets in the way of like, what I think would be more helpful mm-hmm. to hear. So where can people find you and your book and read more of your stuff? So I, on the internet, mainly still live at my old design sponge handle on Instagram. Um, I am now just a lurker on TikTok and everything else. So if you want to talk to me, you can find me anytime at design sponge on Instagram. Our second interview this episode is with Daisha Kennedy, founder of The Broke Black Girl. My name is Daisha Kennedy. I am a financial activist. A lot of people know me as the Broke Black Girl. I provide culturally relevant financial literacy resources to African-American women. I started documenting my journey back in 2017. And since then, I've helped over 70,000 women kickstart their personal finance journey. So, yeah, I was going to say, what specifically led you to starting the Broke Black Girl? Originally, I wanted to create a safe space for African-American women to come together and talk about our unique experience with money. We exist right at the intersection of both gender and race. So when you consider all of the social and economic barriers that exist because of those two factors, our experience with money is very unique. So I wanted us to have a safe space, which I created. It was started as a Facebook group. Now it's grown into a huge digital community. I just wanted us to come together and talk about money. I really wanted to just share some things that was working for me. I feel like in the spaces that I was entering, a lot of people really did not understand what I was experiencing. So I just wanted to create a safe space to say, hey, this is what I'm experiencing. This is what's working for me. Maybe you should try it out. And within like the first few months of starting this group, I had 50,000 women saying, yes, I can relate to you as well. And we were all just sharing tips and sharing our journey with each other. Well, okay. So, I mean, the numbers speak for themselves, but like, why was it important for you to focus your work in particular on Black women? Black women, as I said, we exist at the intersection of both gender and race. And so when you consider all of the social economic barriers that impact those two factors, having a safe space to have those conversations without feeling judged or shamed or even ghastly to think that some of these things that we are experiencing do not exist. What were they saying didn't exist? So for for example, and I'll, I'll use myself for an example. When I first started out my personal finance journey, I was working in the finance industry and I needed to sit down with a financial advisor. And we were going over my finances. And the very first thing that the financial advisor called out to me was I was overspending on my food budget. I was spending way more than what the average was for my family. And he just went on and on about this. And for me, I had to explain to him, well, I live in what would be considered a food desert. There's not any grocery stores near me. I don't have a car. So I'm purchasing food from a local convenience store for two times the price. And what's near me is mostly all fast food restaurants. So I'm having to make a choice because of my circumstances, because of where, I, where I'm living at in food deserts or way more common in predominantly black communities. So when you are sitting down with a financial advisor and they are not aware of the issues that heavily impact black communities, 
their advice does not come from a place of understanding. It comes from a place of what they have already assumed to be the normal. And the normal, unfortunately, does not always look like black women. Yeah, that's, I think, an understatement. (laughs) Are there any other examples of that 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 like you felt, you know, come up often in, let's say, in the Facebook group? So one of the biggest things across the board, I always hear that black women, when they are seeking personal finance advice, they don't feel heard. They don't feel seen. They don't get the advice from a lot of people who look like them. And so they don't feel comfortable in a lot of cases. If someone is not aware of those issues that impact black women, they're not going to be able to relate to them. And so that's the main thing that I hear is that they want to be in a space where they don't have to constantly explain what it feels like to be a black woman navigating personal finance. They want to be in a space with someone who already understands it, which to me, I believe makes perfect sense. Oh, yeah, absolutely. One of the things uh, that was on your Instagram, which I like, one of the things that was on there is this toxic concept of like the superwoman. Yes. So can you explain what that is? To me, when I think of the toxic concept of a superwoman, it is a woman that has to be constantly moving, constantly doing something to feel valuable or to feel productive. I do not agree with that. Women are not mules. We do not have to carry everyone's load. We do not have to solve everyone's problems. It is perfectly okay for us to rest. And honestly, I think when we are provided a space to rest, we can be more productive. Yeah. Where does that come from? Like, why why is that such a thing that's put on? I mean, not just women, but also largely women of color. To be honest, we would have to go all the way back and it probably was would be before then. But I honestly think it's rooted from from the beginning of time, especially when you think of the role that the black woman had to play during slavery. We were responsible for a lot for not only our families, but our slave owners families. And I think after generation after generation, it has been something that has been embedded into people thinking that it is our responsibility to care for and nurture and solve all of these problems that are not technically our own. And for me, I reclaim my power back by resting. Yeah, I was going to talk about that. I don't know if you know about the NAP ministry, which I am obsessed with. Yes. Yeah. So they talk a lot about like a switch from productivity culture and the obsession with productivity back to this sort of like reclaiming of rest and like can you explain a little bit like how is rest a rebellion almost so first i want to say this i absolutely love the nap ministry i've been following <laughs> that page for a while and everything that she puts out it's always on the mark when i think about black women being able to reclaim our time. For example, for me, I recently started investing in having a house cleaner come by two times a month. This was the hardest thing for me to do because I felt like, Daisha, there's nothing wrong with you. You can clean up yourself. But then it made me feel like, why does something have to be wrong with me? Why do I have to be completely burnt out before I can then say, okay, that's enough. I need help. If I even say that, it's so much power in being able to recognize that there are things that I can delegate. I can't reclaim my time, even if I have to buy it back or delegate certain tasks. And I can be 
okay with that. And I think when I am able to rest, I show up more for myself and other situations that matter the most to me. For an example, I'm a mother. I have two children. If I'm able to delegate certain day-to-day tasks that allow me to rest at certain times, I can show up to my son's football game and run up and down the field and be happy about it. I can show up to his band recital and cheer him on and be excited about it. I'm not constantly existing in a state where I'm having to trade my time for money. Yes. I was about to ask you about being a mother, but you covered it. (laughs) Being a mother, when I just that, the whole experience within itself, my mom was a teen mom. I was a teen mom. So being a mother while navigating a personal finance journey has been a very very complex journey, but I think that there's so much more that we can be doing for teen moms in the realm of personal finance. I would love to hear more about that. So for me, when we think back to the year I was born, I'm going to tell my age, but that's okay. I was born in 1988. And around that time, there was an estimated 1 million births to teen moms. So when we think of all of the barriers that a teen mom will face, they're less likely to receive an education. They're less likely if they do go forward with their education to graduate from high school, they're going to ultimately, not ultimately, because it's not everyone's case, but the chances are more likely that they'll have some type of government assistance. Then you have all of the new expenses that come with taking care of a baby, the baby's needs, the teen mom's needs. It's just being able to have conversations centered around teen pregnancy and personal finance, I think is vital. But to just think that a million people were born in 1998 to teen mothers, there's so much we could have done if we would have had resources available that speak directly to their experience of having a child before you're even able to work, which, which was my experience. What did you find was helpful? I have to be honest, there was not anything that was available for me. For me, it was trial and error. When I think about when I had my son, when I was 19 years old, there there was nothing that spoke to, okay, this is how you budget as a teen mom. These are some of the new ex- expenses that you're going to have. This is what it's going to look like for you entering into the workforce. This is what you should be concerned about. And I think because those conversations are not always pretty. They're not always the go-to conversation that people want to have in personal finance, but it's happening. The people being left out of the conversation, I believe is on purpose. The people at the top, they don't want to include these people because one, they feel like it's a scarcity and they'll lose power if they do. Mm -hmm. Or two, you know, they want to keep certain populations busy so they don't (laughs) rise up and realize that everything is screwed up. And so it does come down to like us creating spaces for ourselves because they view probably, I would say they view the 1 million teen moms in 1988 as lost causes. Yes, that is exactly it. And you know, and you know what? Since they are not going to say it, we'll say it. I, I'll say it and I'll create a space and I'll be bold and I'll be powerful where you cannot shut me out of the conversation. A lot of people will ask me, they'll say, well, Why haven't you changed your name? Why do you still go by the broke black girl? Um, If your finances have changed and things have gotten better for you, why haven't you changed it? 
Why? Because if I say, oh, okay, now my money is better. I can no longer relate to what it feels like to be broke. And I try to do away with that. Then there goes a space that I've created for women who are still experiencing that or people who may experience that. Yeah. I mean, so how do you how do you work to make your money advice inclusive? I listen Instead of solely focusing on leading the conversations and having the conversations that I think people want to hear, I listen when someone gives their unique experience and I create content and educational resources for what they need, not what I think they need, which is what we see. How can someone be their own financial advocate? When I think of a financial advocate, to me, it's someone who is willing to speak up for their own finances, knowing that no one is going to care more about your money than you. And it's small, subtle ways. Like for me, when I first realized I had the confidence to speak up for myself, it was when I had to return a damaged item. I didn't damage it. It was damaged at the store, but I was so afraid to, to take it back because I thought like, oh, I'm going to take it back. It's going to be an inconvenience for the person at the store. And I was just going to sit on it and just consider it a loss. But I knew that that wasn't right. And although I was scared, and this is a very subtle way, but it was when I first noticed how important financial confidence is, being a, a, being able to speak up for yourself when something isn't right. It's okay to, to speak up for yourself. Why are you so confident? (laughs) To be honest, when you know what it feels like to be in a room and you feel small and you feel overlooked and you feel like people are not listening or people are, are gaslighting your real experiences, it comes to a point where you have to say, okay. That, that's it. I'm not I'm not doing that anymore. And when I first started my community, I had no idea it was going to turn into anything like what it is now. My initial goal was just to share some tips with what was working for me, what I was learning. And so when the community grew so big and I knew that I had 50,000, then 60,000, then 70,000 black women cheering behind me, there's nothing to be afraid of. There's nothing to be afraid of after that because I'm not by myself. When I am leading my community, I know that I'm not by myself. If you are a financial advocate personally, how do you become a financial advocate politically too? Yeah, so I I get this question a lot. And one of the easiest ways that I encourage people is to be involved with what's happening locally in politics. Even if you, you don't want to go, you know, deep dive into what's going on, we all should have a general concern about what's happening because the things that are happening in our both state and federal, they impact our finances. Some of the decisions that are being made in politics, it impacts how much we're going to pay for health care, how much we're going to pay for child care, what's happening locally. All of that, the taxes that we pay, all of that ultimately impacts our personal finances. So most of it is being involved, knowing who is making the decisions, who's running for what office, who's over what office in your local community and asking questions. I think a lot of times when I push people to be a financial advocate politically, most people think that, oh, the only way that I can have some type of real change is if I'm running for an office or I'm diving deep into politics or I know these terms or I know how to get in that room. And that technically 
is not it. It's asking general questions when to, for your local politicians, holding them accountable. If someone is saying that, oh, I am pushing for this movement, asking questions, ask how that's going to impact you and knowing that it's okay to be in those rooms, challenging the people that are going to be making decisions on behalf of where you live at. Yeah, I mean, it largely comes down to speaking up, asking questions, and then like on this show too, it's been like, you know, since 2016, it's just been like, don't be afraid to look stupid. Yes, that I say that so much. Don't be afraid to look stupid. Don't be afraid to ask the silly questions. It's okay to look silly. I would look silly for a couple of seconds if I knew that the person was going to understand what I was saying and give me information that would last a lifetime. Yes. I saw on your Instagram talk of financial boundaries, and I don't think that's something that we've talked about on this show. And I think especially for marginalized people who often get, like I said, run over for those types of things. So what are financial boundaries and how do you set them? Financial boundaries are the limits that you set on your money between you, your family and your friends. And the gist of it, it sounds very simple to sum it up so that we, because it can become a a complex thing. It's being okay with saying no. The easy example, let's say someone wants to borrow money in the family. Sometimes we feel compelled to do that because that's our family. But if helping someone else is going to hurt you, that's a boundary that you can set. Mm -hmm. The key that I use is if it's going to help me to hurt someone else and I know that my no is coming from a good place, I have to be okay with setting that hard financial boundary. Uh. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. Where can people find you and find out more about you? Yes, I am extremely active on Instagram right now. That is my most active page. It is at the broke black girl. And I have a website, which is the broke black These structures are only in place because they're what has been in place. The assumption that they were put there for any reason other than ease or exclusivity is sometimes what's holding us back. Asking questions, asking why, asking if it has to be this way. These are some shockingly effective methods to push back on what we've decided is too entrenched. Like, there are always ways to do things differently and to learn what actually works for the people who need financial media the most. Done. 